and uh, I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles tonight. <clears throat> Two different scripture passages we are going to look at. Page 1496, you'll find Matthew chapter 1. 1496, and then page 1588. And those references are in your bulletins as well. Page 1588 for Luke chapter 1. We've been looking uh, this season of Advent at uh, Matthew's genealogy for the Christ, sort of his resume for why he should be king uh, and Messiah, and we'll complete that, uh, that series tonight as we look at the person of Mary and then also Joseph. By the way, we will worship again tomorrow morning on Sunday morning at 9.30. We'd love to have you join us uh, tomorrow morning as well. Let's, uh, let's turn to um, Matthew 1 now, and I'm just going to read a couple of verses there. So this is toward the end of, uh, end of the genealogy itself, uh, verse 15, real exciting stuff here. Eliad, the father of Eliezer, Eliezer, the father of Mathan, Mathan, the father of Jacob, and Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary of whom was born Jesus, who is called Christ. And then if you look over at verse 18, this is how the birth of Jesus Christ came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be with child through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was a righteous man and did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. And then we'll turn over to that text in Luke chapter 1, again, page 1588. I'll read from verse 26 there. In the sixth month, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. The angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You will be with child and give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. His kingdom will never end. How will this be, Mary asked the angel, since I am a virgin? The angel answered, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age, and she who was said to be barren is in her sixth month, for nothing is impossible with God. I am the Lord's servant, Mary answered. May it be to me as you have said. Then the angel left her. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Friends in Jesus Christ, have you ever researched and written out your own family tree? You ever gone through that exercise? We were given that assignment way back in seminary. It was for some pastoral care class, I think, and our, our professor gave us a warning along with that assignment. 
he said that we had to beware of the fact that in every family there are secrets lurking, secrets in their family trees. And by secrets, he meant things that families don't like to talk about, things that families would rather forget, like Uncle Sven was an alcoholic, or Cousin Jake was a draft dodger, or Aunt Jody was born before Grandma was married, or Great-Grandma Jenny was Canadian. (laughs) You know, things like that that you really don't want the public to know. And it turns out that my professor was right. It wasn't long into that family tree that I stumbled upon things that had always been a secret in our family. Now, if you want to know what those were, I'm not telling. They're secrets, after all. So if you want to know those kinds of things, family secrets, research your own family. We've all got them, believe me. But this surely can't be true of the family of Jesus, right? Isn't that what we think? I mean, if anyone's family would be free from, from these kinds of secrets, it had, to be, it had to be Jesus' family, right? But that's not the case. That's what we've been learning about all through Advent this year. Matthew makes it very clear that there was some dubious behavior even in Jesus' family tree. This past month, we looked at the four women that that Matthew includes in the ancestry of Jesus. They aren't the typical women one might think of if putting together a resume for the Messiah of Israel. They aren't names like Sarah and Rebecca, Rachel and Leah, the four four matriarchs of Israel. Instead, Instead, Matthew scours the depths of Jesus' closet to find four stories that were, well, just a bit scandalous. You've got Tamar, who tricked her father-in-law into sleeping with her. You've got Rahab, who was a prostitute. You've got Ruth, probably the least remarkable of the bunch, but clearly she was a, a foreigner. She was an outsider to Israel. She was a widow. She was one of the disposable people of her time and culture. And then just last Sunday, we looked at the person of Bathsheba and probably one of the most prominent sexual scandals in all of the Old Testament. And all of these, in Matthew's mind and in his genealogy, were the mothers of Jesus. But when we're done with Bathsheba, when we get that far into the genealogy, we sort of think, well... Now we're done with all of that. Now we're done with all of the messiness, and now, and now we're on to the bright, shining story of, of Jesus himself. Unless you have an eye for detail, that is. Like Matthew wants us to have an eye for detail. You know, sometimes details just jump out at you when you don't really expect it. I remember a time I was watching TV, I was just a little kid, I was watching some cop show, it was probably something like Starsky and Hutch or Kojak or some other hip show like that, but there was a a sedan, a four-door sedan that stopped in front of a building and a couple of the cops got out and they went inside. A little later they came back out from that building and they jumped into another four-door sedan, same color except it was a Dodge. 
I just happened to notice that that really doesn't work. They must have needed that Ford for a different, a different set. And sometimes details like that just sort of jump out at us. They surprise us. But there are other times when, when you really have to look for them, when you have to search for them. And, and that's what Matthew wants us to do in this genealogy. He wants us to really look, to, to study, to search. Because way down at the bottom of this genealogy, he tucks in a little detail that actually throws the reputation of Jesus' very own mother into question. He says that Joseph was the husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus. The husband of Mary. Now, now that really doesn't sound so bad on its own, but friends, genealogies weren't about husbands. Genealogies were about fathers. Read through the genealogy sometime. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac was the father of Jacob, and on and on it goes. Genealogies are about, about fatherhood. They're about begetting. So-and-so begat so-and-so, and so-and-so begat so-and-so, and it goes on and on until you can't stand it any longer. But they're about fathers and fatherhood. And here, what we're told is that Joseph was not the father of Jesus. There was only one name on Jesus' birth certificate, and it was Mary's. There was an empty blank where it said, Father. Joseph's name was not there. Now, now this little detail would hardly be remarkable today, would it? I mean, you can just go down the road just a bit to Freighted Hospital, and I'm sure there are, are, are lots and lots of births that take place there where the father's name is never mentioned and no one blinks an eye about it. But just a couple of generations ago in our own society, it would have been talked about. Or perhaps a better way of saying it is that it would have been whispered about, did you hear, did you hear about this? And, and I don't think we can even imagine what a detail like this would have meant in a Hebrew culture where the proper order of things was to get betrothed and then to get married and then to have children. And there was no mixing up of that order. That's the way it was supposed to be. Now, Luke 1 sort of clarifies everything for us for the readers of Scripture. I mean, there we read Mary's story, right? And we hear the truth. We know that Mary was a virgin and that Jesus was actually the Son of God. But if you didn't know that background, if you didn't have that story to look at, what would you think if you just read Matthew? You maybe would have thought, scandal, Scandal. There's scandal here. You would have thought exactly what Joseph would have thought. Houston, we have a problem. Mary's pregnant, and I'm not the father. Now, I know what you're thinking tonight. You're probably thinking, Pastor, it's Christmas Eve. There are kids here. You know, we, want about, we came to hear about angels 
and about babies and about holy nights and, and all of that kind of stuff. And here you are bringing up biology and gynecology and all of that sort of stuff. Do we have to do this now? And the answer is, yeah, we do. We have to do this now because we have to be faithful to Matthew. And Matthew is trying to communicate something to us here, friends. And that is that the family secrets don't end with Bathsheba. Even Mary herself was caught up in a cloud of innuendo. There were whispers, there were rumors going on behind her back, swirling even around Mary, that Jesus and the birth of Jesus was not as holy as we make it out to be. Matthew makes it clear to us that before Mary and Joseph came together, Mary was found to be pregnant. Before Mary and Joseph came together, people knew, and you can bet that they talked. We don't think about that side of things too often, do we? That side of Christmas. What it must have been like for Mary to hear all of those accusations of she's a sinner thrown at her. I mean, we sing about holy nights while Mary was accused of participating in unholy nights. But then, that's sort of what we do as Christians, isn't it? We, we try to sanitize Try to sanitize the Bible, try to sanitize Christmas and just about everything else religious. We try to clean it all up. We try to clean up people like Judah. We sanitize Rahab and the spies. We clean up David and Uriah's wife. And if we can't clean them up, what do we do? We just ignore them completely. Instead, we focus on the Sarahs and the Rebeccas and the Rachels and all the, all the good women in Scripture. But what's the result of all that sanitizing that we do? What's the result? What does it lead to? Well, friends, if we cut and paste just enough, and if we use just enough bleach on all of these stories, we get rid of all the sin, don't we? We get rid of all the yuckiness, all the messiness that we find in Scripture. And what happens is that when you get rid of all the sin, there's no more need for a Savior. And friends, the truth is, when there's no more need for a Savior, there's no need for Christmas. There's no need for Christmas. It just becomes a nice night for nice people to sing nice songs and to bask in the glow of family and candles and those kinds of things. But Matthew will not allow that. Why? Because you can't get rid of sin that way. You can't find peace on earth that way. You just can't wipe sin away, like you wipe away germs with bleach. 
You can't wipe sin away by having positive thoughts and, and doing good works. It just doesn't work that way. Sin keeps on coming back. It keeps rearing its ugly head. And when it finally strikes us, when it finally strikes us that we have more Rahab in us than Rebecca and more Tamar in us than we do Sarah, Matthew wants us to know at that point, at that time, that that's exactly why Jesus came. Because while perfect people may not need a Savior, sinners do. And that's what we are, friends. We're sinners who need Jesus. Even Joseph needed Jesus. He just may not have known it at the time. Joseph, we're told, was a righteous man. And when he found out that Mary was pregnant, he was going to get lost. He was going to divorce her. Now, he could have done worse. I mean, he could have made a public spectacle of her. He probably could have had her stoned to death, but, but he didn't. And yet, don't, don't kid yourself, Joseph was going to divorce her. He was going to get rid of her. I mean, righteousness and scandals do not mix. And as far as Joseph knew, Mary was pregnant by another man. And so he was out of there. So I imagine that Joseph really did have his mind made up. Even after he heard Mary's explanation of, you know, the angel coming to her and all of that, you think Joseph believed that? Hey, would you have believed that story? Apparently, Joseph needed his own angel to convince him about that story. And that seems pretty typical. I think any one of us would need an angel visit or two to believe the story that Mary was told. Maybe even a whole choir's worth of angels. And so Joseph was about to walk away like most of us would. And, and this is the part of the story that we don't often think about too much. Usually, usually we think that, that Mary had a choice here. It's usually what we hear in the words that she speaks. May it be to me as you have said. But as I read the text, Gabriel wasn't so much asking Mary for her compliance as he was telling her what was going to happen. You will be with child, and you will give birth to a son, and you will give him the name Jesus. Does that really sound like Mary had much of a choice in this matter? You know who did have a choice? It was Joseph. Men always have a choice when it comes to fatherhood, don't they? I was talking with someone a while back, and they said that, you know, whenever the issue of abortion comes up in the church, the church always wants to point out that the child is really a person, not a choice. And yet this is always pointed out to the women. 
That's always the message that we preach to the women, but we don't seem to preach the same message to the men. And yet, I was reminded that the baby is always a choice for the father, because the father can always choose to just walk away. And until we change that, it's going to be awfully hard to end abortion. Well, Joseph had a choice here. Is he going to believe Mary's story? Is he going to believe the angel? Is he going to choose to take Jesus into his life? Is he going to choose to be Jesus' father? Or is he going to choose to walk away? Before we answer that, do you see what's going on here? Jesus isn't even born yet. He's not even born yet. And he is already challenging Joseph's understanding of what it means to be righteous. Joseph thought that righteousness meant walking away, getting away from sin. Righteousness meant putting some distance between himself and, and Mary and people and situations like Mary, that reek of sin. But already, he's not even born yet, and Jesus is challenging that perception of righteousness. Already, Jesus is stretching and challenging Joseph to do something more. You know, righteousness is actually a really major theme in, in the Gospel of Matthew. And Jesus is continually challenging people's definition of what it means to be righteous. I mean, if you read his Sermon on the Mount sometime, you see that immediately. You have heard it said, Jesus says, you have heard it said, thou shalt not kill. But I say, don't even get angry with your neighbor. You have heard it said, don't commit adultery. But I say, don't even look at another person with lust in your heart. You have heard it said, love your neighbor and, and hate your enemy. But I say, love your enemy and pray for those who persecute you. This is what it means to be righteous. Jesus challenged the righteousness of the most righteous people on earth at that time, the Pharisees. He said, it's not just looking good on the outside that makes you righteous while your heart is all full of, all full of junk like pride and envy and resentment. No, Jesus said, righteousness means that you're pure on, on the inside. And then that purity shows itself on the outside, just like a good tree produces good fruit. And this is what Jesus does to all of us, friends. If you choose to take Jesus into your life, then he, he stretches you and He grows you from the inside until you begin to take on His form and His shape, just like He literally did to Mary. Jesus grows and 
stretches our understanding of righteousness. He makes it clear that that righteousness isn't about building nice thick walls to insulate us from the people that we may think are are bad influences on us or, or they might stain our reputation somehow. Rather, righteousness, he says, is seeing everyone as if they're people, as if they're people that God loves and that God wants to be a part of His family, literally a part of His family. In fact, remember the time that, that Jesus was told that his mother and his brothers, his family, they were outside waiting to talk to him, and, and Jesus just pops out with this phrase. He says, you know, my family is, is right here in this crowd. My family is whoever does the will of my Father. And, and that's the only eligibility requirement that Jesus gives for being a part of his family. Whoever does the will of my Father. And who does the will of his Father? Well, it's whoever accepts Jesus into their life and lets him form and shape them into the people of true righteousness, just like Joseph and just like Mary. We've got to let Jesus shape us. And form us into something completely different than we are now. You know, we often associate Christmas angels with the announcement of peace on earth, goodwill to men. But friends, before you can have peace on earth, you have to hear the angel speaking to Joseph. What he says is, Joseph, this situation with Mary, it's it's not what you think it is. It's not what it looks like on the surface. Mary isn't what you're thinking she is. And true righteousness isn't what you think it is. But this child, this child will teach you And as he does, this child will be accused of the very same things his mother was accused of. He's a sinner, people will say. He breaks the Sabbath. He disregards the law. He hangs around with the wrong kinds of people. He blasphemes God and everything that he does. He's a sinner. Don't believe it, Joseph. Jesus is the personification of righteousness. He is righteousness in the flesh. And Joseph, he came to be your righteousness. He came to be your righteousness, to give you peace with God. And Joseph, he came to make you righteous. And as your righteousness becomes more and more real, it's going to spread. It's going to spread through your family and through your community and across the earth. And there really will be peace on earth. But that's the only way it'll come, Joseph. It's the only way it comes to any of us and to all of us And that's if you believe the angel's message 
and you choose to take Jesus into your life. You have to believe the angel's message that today in the town of David a Savior has been born to you. And He is Christ, the Lord. And He is the Son of God. A Savior that Joseph could not produce, but that none of us can truly live without. I hope this is the best Christmas of your life. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, here we sit, a people full of sin, needing a Savior, and you came because we needed you to make us a part of your family. And it's amazing to think, O oh Lord, that when you walk through your family tree, you point to people like Tamar and Rahab, and you point to people like us, and you say, here's one of my favorites. Here's another one that I love. Here's another one that I came into the world to save. And now, and now they're a part of my family tree. May this be true of each one of us here, by your grace, through your love and the work of Christ. Amen.